Margie, I'm really looking forward to our discussion today where we're going to dive deeper into some state and local tax issues and considerations. I know that we'll be highlighting some of the questions that come up about state budgets and what impact that's going to have or wealth taxes. And I think we're also going to talk about some surprises or predictions that might have been different than what we thought. State taxation can sometimes feel like the wild, wild west. So I'm looking forward to Tove and Robert helping us to gain some clarity. So Julie, let's talk tax. You're listening to Tap Into Tax, PwC's podcast series covering current regulatory, legislative, and technology hot topics through the lens of our technical leaders, as well as process and technology subject matter specialists. This podcast features discussions with some of our leading minds around tax, trade, and domestic policy. Stay tuned to our regular updates and subscribe to our series to get notified as new episodes are published. Welcome, listeners. I am Julie Allen, PwC's National Tax Services Market Leader, and I'm joined by Margie Dungeshaw, PwC's U.S. Tax Reporting and Strategy Leader. On this episode of Tap into Tax, we are joined by Robert Garvey, a principal in our state and local tax practice, and he's based in Los Angeles. We're also joined by Tove Howison, PwC's New York Metro Regional State and Local Tax Leader. Robert and Tove are here today to discuss the impact of the elections on state and local tax and what policies might lie ahead. Robert and Tove, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to Tap into Tax. Thank you, Julie. Delighted to be here. Thanks, Julie. So, Robert, I'll come over to you first. What impact do the federal elections have on state taxes? Great question, Julie. I think this year the key implication will be the likelihood, the magnitude, and the timing of much hoped for and anticipated federal aid to assist states with their very strained budgets. To give you context, I'll use my home state of California. Back in the beginning of the year, January 2020, Governor Newsom submitted a balanced budget of approximately $200 billion. After the COVID pandemic came in, by May, that had to be revised to a $54 billion deficit. The state dealt with that deficit through a combination of tax increases, expense cuts and deferrals, and rating the rainy day fund. The most recent revision came just last week, and things are better than the dire times we had back in May. We actually are only at a $26 billion deficit, so actually a $26 billion surplus relative to where we had started. However, that is temporary. The state anticipates being in a budget deficit over the next three-year cycle, and the budget itself had a provision in it that $14 billion in federal aid was expected. The state of California's position, and really all the states, is that COVID is too big of a problem for the states to deal with with their limited powers. The federal government has the important powers of being able to run a budget deficit. Most states don't have that. And to print money. No state has that. And so they're counting on the federal government to help. Based on where we are in the elections, I'd say it's more likely with Joe Biden being elected president that will have a a much ways in the balance with runoffs that we have in Georgia. We know at the end of the day, we're going to have a narrowly divided Congress. And so what we think we'll have is some measure of federal aid to the states, some measure of cuts, and ultimately balanced budgets. Excellent, Robert. That was great insight. 
Now, as we all know, politics and policy aren't necessarily synonymous. So how about federal tax policy? How does the federal tax policy outlook impact state taxes? Really good question, Margie. So in the last few years, we've seen significant impact on the state side because of federal tax policy changes like the Tax Care Jobs Act, TCGA, the CARES Act. They've had a tremendous impact on the compliance burdens that many of us face, in addition to the state tax liability, as we're seeing state effective tax rates continue to increase. And there's a lot of conformity and nonconformity issues that everybody has to deal with when there are federal policy changes. Generally, in the Biden tax proposals, there probably wouldn't have been, at least up front, a significant state conformity impact. Rates, for example, do not impact the state liabilities except in a small number of states that provide deduction for federal taxes paid. Likewise, generally no state impact with AMT. But there are going to be some impacts, whether it's expiring provisions to the extent they're dealt with in early next year. Other tax changes could also impact the states depending on the state's positions on rolling or fixed state conformity. As many of you know, states have different rules for how they adopt federal changes. Some do it automatically. Others do it kind of at a fixed date, December 31st. Or states like New Hampshire in the past hadn't updated their federal conformity for a couple of decades at one point before they updated it for the recent federal tax reform. So unfortunately, it's a little all over the map in terms of conformity. One example for 163J, which has a big state impact, and the change in the interest limitation measurement, which begins on 1122, unless there's any federal provisions that get amended. Most states will have a degree of conformity to 163J. But as we saw when 163J was being established and kind of looking and understanding, does it impact the group as a whole or in certain states where it's separate kind of companies that report one by one, how does 163J and the interplay occur there? And states are also inspired by proposals at the federal level. And as Robert correctly said, to the extent the Biden agenda does not kind of occur at the federal level as quickly, and again, depending on what happens with the Georgia Senate runoffs, if the Senate remains Republican, in all likelihood, we might not see as fast, even though I don't have the crystal ball, many of my colleagues do in D.C., tax policy at the federal level. But I'm almost assured given less federal funding and some challenges that the states have to do to balance their budget, as Robert said, we're going to see significant state tax reform, even if it only is state-only reform. And then lastly, one of the messages, again, regardless of what happens at the federal level, is we will see certain things, right? So a carried interest provision is one example that happens or could happen at the state level. The other thing we're seeing states start to look at is wealth taxes, which have gotten a lot of attention in Robert's state of California or in New York, and CEO pay ratio taxes, which San Francisco just adopted and joined Portland, Oregon. We're going to probably continue to see those pop up in certain jurisdictions. So Robert and Tove, you've shared a lot of information with us about the impact the federal elections have on the state level, budget considerations that we need to take into account, and also the impact of federal tax policy. And you appropriately wove in there some of the legislative or regulatory issues at the federal level that also have an impact at the state level, such as Section 163J. Let's turn to the state level and focus on that a little bit more right now. What about election results at the state and local level? Were predictions off there as well? And what was the impact? 
I think the big surprise at the state level was actually the lack of surprises, or at least the lack of changes. Nearly 6,000 legislative races in 44 states. And people thought with record turnout, you may have more changes. And when I say changes, I should note the state legislature models itself in most states after the federal government. You have two chambers and people anticipated that there might be record changes this year. Kind of the opposite happened. In 2020, uh, the big change was in New Hampshire. Both the House and the Senate went from Democratic to Republican, but it's a two-year general election cycle. And precisely the opposite happened in Virginia in 2019 the two houses went from Republican to Democrat. So you actually have no net change over the period, only four changes in total, two in each of those two states. The average by way of reference is 12 changes over a two-year general cycle. So we had much less in the way of change than pundits would have predicted or that would have even been the ordinary case. Another thing that was surprising to individuals was California Proposition 15, which was the split role to get rid of Prop 13's cap on property taxes with regard to commercial and industrial property. This was actually a proposition where the polls went back and forth between likely to pass, not likely to pass. And frequently we had disagreement between polls, depending on what group had been polled. So we knew going in, that was going to be a very close ballot measure. It was, in fact, but ultimately was defeated. So this was probably the best and perhaps the last opportunity to have that type of sea change of a property tax increase in California. It failed and the legislature may have to look to other sources of revenue. One of those could be wealth tax. The governor previously, Governor Newsom, expressed he did not think this was the time or the way to raise taxes. But at that time, he favored Prop 15 and I think believed it would pass. Now that it has not passed, we'll have to see what the other alternatives are in California. So, Tove, why don't you tell us, I think everyone's been tracking a lot of the federal policy and then how that federal policy would be adopted or not at the state level. But what should we be watching? What policies might we see advancing at the state level in light of all these results? It's a really good question. In terms of where I feel like most should focus is the two kind of classes that end up to me likely getting most affected are either high net worth individuals or corporations, both which obviously affect many of the folks that we deal with day in and day out. And so I want to provide everybody some examples of some things we're starting to see. And as Robert correctly said, one of the things even in New York which looks like Senate Democrats are going to have a supermajority. That supermajority is due to the fact that absentee ballots have continued to be counted long after the polls have been closed. If that supermajority does hold, it will mean likely more emphasis on wealth taxes, millionaires taxes, and some of the other taxes that were starting to be proposed in New York. And so millionaires taxes and corporate surcharges, extensions, and raised rates are, are things we're really kind of starting to look at. In New Jersey, they have a surtax for a couple of years. Connecticut currently has a budget proposal, as does California. And as I mentioned a moment ago, I think New York has over a dozen potential bills right now to increase individual rates or some kind of wealth tax. One other area we're starting to see potentially take some traction is alternative-based taxes. So more than a decade ago, Texas came out with their margins tax, or Ohio came out with the commercial activity tax. And more recently, Nevada and Oregon have kind of followed suit. 
I think we're going to start to see additional proposals in more states, at least from an exploratory basis, looking at gross receipts taxes and kind of an alternative minimum. So if a company is not making money per se on an income tax return, but on a gross receipts return, the state will still have revenue coming in. Additionally, excess profit taxes, there's a New York proposal right now And as I mentioned ago, kind of wealth or CEO pay ratio taxes are things we're starting to see. One other trend we're starting to identify is more aggressive audits and different audits, I would say, than we potentially had in years past. One area that they're starting to focus on that they never had spent as much time on the state level as they probably had country to country is around transfer pricing. And some state scrutiny seemingly is increasing as states are either hiring in-house resources or identifying third-party experts to have on the payroll. Some recent examples we're seeing in the Midwest and southern southeastern states of the states looking a little deeper at state transfer pricing and changing some of the methodologies that companies have employed. Hey, Tove, on the topic of uh, millionaire tax, which you mentioned earlier, I think that was another situation where we had a surprise at the polls from a state tax perspective. Both Arizona and Illinois had on their ballot measure increases in individual income taxes. In Illinois, uh, they were going to get rid of a constitutional amendment. They were going to make constitutional amendments so they could not have a flat tax. And in Arizona, there was going to be an increase in tax on high-income taxpayers. I think the prediction there was that the Illinois measure was likely to pass, Arizona likely to fail. We had exactly the opposite happen. The Arizona measure passed and the Illinois measure failed. In Illinois, actually, the problem will now be thrown back to the legislature. They cannot, because of the Constitution, have other than a flat tax, but they certainly can increase the rate on that flat tax. And ultimately, I think that's one of the relatively few choices they have that they could make to help deal with a budget deficit. So I think we'll increasingly see that. I think that's right, Robert. And one other area that we're starting to see increased activity, and it will probably go in both directions, is around deductions and credits. And so from a NOL perspective, will we start to see more NOL suspension or reduction in the ability to fully utilize NOLs for a period of time? And then from a credits perspective, there's going to be increased scrutiny on those credits. And so New York's film credit, for example, gets reviewed periodically in terms of, is that credit mechanism availing itself to the folks that take it, something that is kind of paying dividends to a jurisdiction and and to New York in particular. But I think we're also going to see in the environment where states are, are really hungry to attract and retain additional talent and more companies and workforce in their states, they will then become more aggressive potentially. And we're already starting to see it in certain pockets of either no income tax states or states that have a lower rate than some other of the quote unquote high income tax states to start to attract some of these companies and move workforce in different ways. And so I think as everybody is revisiting their domestic footprint, kind of in light of COVID and just other business concerns, credits and incentives will be a place that companies want to make sure they're at least understanding because it can either be a positive or a negative, again, depending on how it goes. So if that's something for us to really think about, because as states are making all these changes, like you mentioned, the millionaire's taxes, the alternative base taxes, excess profits taxes. So a lot's changing on the state front. So how they tax is changing. And simultaneously, 
differently, how business is done is also changing. So as we see businesses and their continued shift to online purchasing and digital delivery of services, how might we see states respond in amending their tax structures? So it's a really good question. And I think there's already been an evolution, but I think there'll be a continued evolution, Margie, in this area. And so in kind of consumption or sales and use type taxes, and no, we're not, I don't think, ready as a country yet to have kind of a, a U.S. VAT, for lack of a better way to say it. But I do think in the sales and use tax area, we're going to see continued broadening and probably broadening in a few different pockets. I think as the digital economy continues to evolve, some things that might have been either delivered through a tangible medium in the past that are now delivered electronically will probably be up for debate in terms of, is that a place where states are going to try from a sales tax perspective to tax? Maryland is a great example as kind of a first in the nation digital advertising state, though I think others will likely fall. I also think there's been some great kind of lobbying around exemptions for different things from a sales and use or a consumption perspective. And we're going to probably start to see more scrutiny on those exemptions. I think the message here is be mindful of the things that you're doing. And either if you're on the sales side, what you're selling, which is kind of services based or on what you're consuming to understand that there will probably be additional scrutiny. And it's a way for states to raise revenue by adding to the tax base on the sales and use tax side. Totally agree with your comments on that, Tove. I'll just note, particularly if there is not federal aid forthcoming imminently for the states, the legislatures really have to narrow their decision making. They have to take the Willie Sutton approach. So Willie Sutton was a bank robber. A reporter asked him, why do you rob banks? The answer was, that's where they keep the money. From a state tax perspective, if I look at the pie chart of where revenues come from, the two biggest slices of pie in the vast majority of states are personal income tax or sales tax. And if you're going to make a change and make a meaningful change, it has to be generally to one of those two to solve large problems, either broadening the base on the sales tax side to include things like services and intangibles that traditionally have not been subject to sales tax or increasing the rate on the personal income tax side. You can do things with sin taxes. You can do things in other areas, but you just don't get enough movement to really plug a big hole. Robert and Tove, I think all of those points are very interesting. And I want to come back to a few themes that I heard throughout the comments that you were making and really focus on one section. And that is with respect to scrutiny and audit activity. Back when we were talking about transfer pricing and then about this digital delivery of services, you brought up these points of audit activity and scrutiny. And I know that there was a sentiment that taxpayers could anticipate an uptick in audit activity as states need to address budget shortfalls and that this would increase audit activity to ensure compliance also. So what are your thoughts on what taxpayers can anticipate? And Tov, let me come over to you. Would love your thoughts on that point. No, absolutely. And I think we're already starting to see it in pockets. Audits are seemingly taking longer in certain jurisdictions. And again, some of it has to do with ability of the workforce at the state or this kind of local departments of revenue to through and while working virtually get everything done. I also think as refund claims are in and getting filed and have been filed and are working through the audit process, they're probably going to be slower to resolve and more arduous. I think we're also going to see on the income tax or the sales tax side additional 
Nexus-related audits. And so whether you want to point it to Wayfair from a couple of years ago or not, we're starting to see more audits that are coming to bear based on being picked up from a Nexus perspective because they have withholding in the jurisdiction or another thing that kind of having an affiliate or an agent on their behalf working in the state. And again, the states are going to continue to be more aggressive. I think, as Robert said, it's not going to necessarily plug the hole in terms of the budget, but it's something in kind of the measure of the continuum that we will see continued activity from an audit perspective and likely increased activity over the next couple of years, similar to how in certain states that were unfortunately adversely affected by the financial crisis of seven, eight, and nine, and their audit activity increased and refunds got IOU'd or paid a little slower than they were used to, we're probably going to see some of those in particular states that budget deficits are in real despair. No question. I think that'll be the case. Most states have no time limit in which they have to act on a refund claim. And so if you're having a cash flow issue, it's relatively easy from the state tax department to say, we're going to prioritize things that bring in collections. We're going to delay things that send cash out. And so we definitely saw that, as Tove alluded to, uh, during the financial crisis. I completely think uh, that we'll see, again, a situation where Assessments are prioritized. That's where the effort goes from the state tax department's perspective. Refunds are delayed. And that being said, Robert, I do think there might be an opportunity for companies or individuals who are paying tax to be able to resolve things quickly if the jurisdiction needs money. And so if they're willing to resolve, settle their matter, and it's again, where you're on the assessment side versus the refund side, we're starting to see where cases potentially even in certain places could speed up a little. And then the only other point for the audience is in certain states, there is deemed denied statutes where if they don't respond to a claim within a normally at six months, those claims ended up being counted as denied versus it's still sitting there. So I would make sure from a statute perspective, if you filed a claim and haven't heard that you're paying attention and understanding jurisdictionally, a deemed denied statute could end up being a problem and make sure you're following up with the jurisdiction. That's a great point. I know the deemed denied statute in New Mexico, where they have no obligation to even contact you, can catch people by surprise. And sometimes they will take advantage of that by not contacting you at all. So that's a wonderful point. I also like the point of people being in an assessment position, perhaps having superior negotiating power. And I think they do, particularly if there's pressure on the state to bring funds in and bring them in today. That does move the dynamic in favor of taxpayers. Robert Tove, thank you so much for joining us today. It's always a challenge to keep up to speed on all the changes taking place at the state level. And you've really given us some fascinating insight today and a little bit of a peek around the corner as we're all addressing these state tax challenges. So Robert Tove, thank you so much for joining us on Tap into Tax. podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.